Starting Saturday, 11th of September, Season 2 of Author Question Time on Ross Jeffrey's YouTube channel. Join Bram Stoker Award-nominated author Ross Jeffrey alongside co-hosts T.C. Parker and Kev Harrison as they discuss books, writing and creativity with huge names in horror and dark fiction like Josh Malaman and Alan Baxter, alongside some of the most exciting new voices on the indie scene such as Eric LaRocca, Hayley Piper and Laurel Hightower. Come, bring your questions, join in the conversation. Don't Break the Oath is the fourth volume of the Women in Horror anthologies from Candisha Press. Featuring a foreword from the VP of the HWA, Megan O'Curry, and stories from 23 women from all around the world. Candles will burn as we speak our dark oath. Edited by Jill Girardi and Janine Pipe. Don't Break the Oath will be out in ebook and paperback on Halloween. Thank you. Looking for your next horror writing podcast fix? The This Is Horror podcast for readers, writers, and creators is the ultimate show for writing advice, tips, and a personal look into the lives of all your favorite authors. This is Horror Podcast. Listen in to long-form conversations with some of the best writers and creatives on the planet. Over 400 episodes with masters of horror such as Joe R. Lansdale, Chuck Palahniuk, Josh Mallerman, Joe Hill, Charlene Harris, Craig Clevenger, Ellen Datlow, Kathy Koja, and many more. The This Is Horror Podcast. Listen in at www.thisishorror.com. That's the This Is Horror Podcast for readers writers and creators Thank you for joining us for another episode. Before we begin, I want to remind you, our good friend Michael David Wilson at This Is Horror, he has a writing and editing consultation service. Two guests or two people he has worked with, worth noting, Josh Mallerman and David Moody. For more information on this, go to michaeldavidwilson.co.uk slash edited. From the host of This Is Horror Podcast comes a dark thriller of obsession, paranoia, and voyeurism. After relocating to a small coastal town, Brian discovers a hole that gazes into his neighbor's bedroom. Every night she dances and he peeps. Same song, same time, same wild and mesmerizing dance. But soon Brian suspects he's not the only one watching and she's not the only one being watched. They're watching is the Wicker Man meets Body Double with a splash of Suspiria. 
They're Watching by Michael David Wilson and Bob Pastorella is available from thisishorror.co.uk, Amazon, and wherever good books are sold. Welcome to Dead Headspace, a part of Silver Shamrock's Horrorcast, a podcast network that includes Killing Time with Silver Shamrock and Unburying the Dead, where we exhume classic horror paperbacks for the new generation. I'm your host, Patrick R. McDonough, joined always by my co-host, Brian LaFaro. Say hi, Brian. Hello, everybody. And today, we're talking with the author of Skull Crack City and The Loop, amongst many other books, Jeremy Robert Johnson. Say hi, Jeremy. Hey, y'all. Great to have you, man. Uh, you know what? One of my... We'll get more into this later, but I knew about you bef- without realizing it before I joined the quote-unquote horror community, the Twitter. I'm just referring to... for Because there's a lot of listeners, I've realized, that are not on... Twitter. Um, so I was introduced to a lot of writers in the horror genre through the Twitter uh, side of things. And I didn't put two and two together, but I realized that I had one of your collections years ago. And uh, it's a small fucking world. So we'll get to that later. But I just want to ask you, man, what got you into horror? Oh, um, I mean, my, my default answer is, is Jaws. Like, basically, you know, um, I was four. I was four years old, and I remember going into my parents' bedroom. Uh, and this is, oh, my God, 81, next to, next to this huge waterbed with, like, a paisley print thing on top. And um, I flip over books on, on my dad's bedstand, and one of them happens to be the paperback of Jaws with the theatrical cover. And the moment I flipped it, I jumped back physically. I was like, what is that? How does that exist? What is that thing? Why is it going to eat that lady? Um, but it was one of those instant, like, you know, um, fear fascination responses. Right. So I saw that and then I crept back into the room and I flipped it over again and I read the back and I was like, whatever this is, I, I need it in my life. And I just became kind of obsessed with sharks and got a bunch of books about sharks from the Deschutes County library. And then by the end of that year, I'd launched this campaign and, uh, for my birthday present for turning five years old to be uh, finally getting to see the movie Jaws. Um, and I, I didn't think they were going to do it. I was like, this is a big push. You know, there's, <laughs> there's no way they're going to show me this thing because it's, it looks like it's for adults, you know, yeah. from the book cover. And uh, I remember I was, I was jumping up and down on my parents' bed with my sister uh, after we ate like a whipped cream and M&M cake. It was this bizarre. I had, that was my other request. It turned out, I thought it would be awesome. Like, you know, two great flavors together. It was a weird cake. And, uh, yeah, and they, uh, had turned the stereo way up out in the living room and I heard, you know, duh, 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 duh. and I, you know, people had already told me, Oh, you know, the Jaws song, you know? And I was like, Oh, I ran out into the uh, living room and, you know, jumped on onto a chair. And I was like, are you kidding me? And it was just that shot, you know, going through the water. Um, so they let me see that. And, but then it was like so much just primordial fear. Cause I was fucking five. Right. So I watched Jaws and, you know, when it gets Brady Kintner and all that blood sprays up, I was like, but I go on water. I go on, you know, uh, inflatable mattresses. Now I'm going to die if I do that. <laughs> yeah, um, you know, they tried to block my eyes from the part where the head comes out of the boat. Uh, but I looked through the fingers and stuff and uh, man, by the end of that. Yeah. So it made it really hard to go in water for like the rest of my life. But um, it also just the, the moment I got the thrill of like seeing Jaws as a kid, there was no looking back. It was it was pretty much just horror from then on out. Um, you know, but by, by the time I was seven, 
I became like a, a king reader. Yeah, I begged my mom to get me Cycle of the Werewolf from the Payless. Mm. Is that a werewolf on the cover? And I was like, is that a comic book? And it, was, <laughs> it turned out it wasn't. Um, and that's how I kind of dove in. And then and then I was lucky enough to be one of those people, um, you know, that's old. So I got to live through the 80s, like horror renaissance where, you know, you'd go in and you'd hit the paperback spinner rack and it would be King and McCammon and Lansdale. And then the Splatterpunks were on there. Um, you know, and Book of the Dead anthology, the Guy and Smith crab books, Brian Lumley with all the necroscope stuff. It was just a completely wild time to hit the paperback scene. Um, so it was super formative. And I, it just, you know, it never stopped. Like Jaws took me off the farm forever. Like I can't go back, you know. Brennan, uh, I know you're going to talk, but I just, there's a few things that I want to point out real quick before we get off to another topic. Um, first off, was it the, movie poster cover or was it the first edition one where it's the same one but it's a lot less detailed it's like a uh gray and white cover um it was i still have it okay it was <laughs> this one yeah the movie I'll, cover I'll together by I, this one this one's well worked over but yeah that um i know the one you're talking about where it's the black silhouette yeah. And it's just the shark's mouth and it's then the little figure. Looking. And I've been on the hunt for that one, but I, I've never copped one. Um, I wish I had it. Yeah, that's the first edition one. Um, the one we're talking about. And I mean, I, I personally like the movie poster one a lot more. Uh, it's terrifying looking. Um, so real quick for listeners that might be interested. Uh, we, me and Brennan are also on a show with uh, Kim McKinley called Unburying the Dead. And the la- the very last one, because we've been on hiatus for varying, reason- varying reasons, but um, the last one we did was with Jaws, Peter Benchley's Jaws. And Jonathan Jans was on that one um, due to his very clear and public love for the movie. But it was interesting to hear him talk about the book. Uh, Brennan, at this point, please jump in, sir. I actually want to piggyback off that. So, Jeremy, with you, with that being so formative, uh, I want to hear your uh, book movie comparison. Oh, um, man, it's a it's a better film. It's a better <laughs> film. Yep. Yeah, I mean, it's pretty straight up and I've read it a bunch of times. And, and uh, you know, I like the weird kind of psychosexual dynamics with Hooper and Brody's wife. <laughs> I find that compelling now when I was a kid. I thought it was boring as hell. I was like, get to more shark bites like Hooper. <laughs> cares about their relationship like as an adult i was like okay i get it and, you know and then um you know i i like hooper actually dying i think that was the beginning of one of spielberg's worst habits fucking ever like i get it people were happy that you can't kill richard dreyfus he comes back yay he's still there um but you know and that and then when he did that again in war of the worlds with the sun i was just like are you kidding me like dude you gotta let some people die this is awful so um no, I mean, it's just just what a phenomenal it's it's one of those rare films that that takes what was great about the book and and strips it down to its purest parts and then amplifies it through the language of cinema. So I, I think I think Jaws absolutely does that. I think um, Heron's American Psycho actually out outweighs the, the book substantially. Um, the Godfather, there's a lot of junk in The Godfather, um, even though they built that script off of actually cutting out pages of the, of the book, um, man, they left out the right stuff. So <laughs> there's, there's, there's very few times, you know, that the, the film Trump's book, but yeah, Jaws is an all-timer. The first, I, I think you kind of nailed it with, you know, the, the film 
in reference to Jaws anyway, the film cuts out the right stuff from the book, even though you were talking about a different film. Um, personally, I hate the middle. Um, I respect your opinion and your ability to, you know, enjoy the psychosexual middle. I fucking hated it. Um, but uh, I, I I will agree with you that I think that, you know, having seen the movie about a thousand times before I tried my hand at the book, uh, when when Hooper dies, sorry, guys, for the spoilers of a book that's been out since 1974. You had time. Yeah, you had time. Um, but when Hooper dies like that, that really shocked the shit out of me. Um, and I wonder if it would have had the same reaction if I was reading that for the first time. I kind of feel like it would have. Yeah, that that death in the in the book is particularly grim too. I mean, it's just it's just so dark. Um, and then the uh, the other scene where Quint's showing them how he can incite a shark frenzy, and that one shark mm. is eating its own guts, yeah, and the yeah. guts are coming back out. I was like, "There's that one could have been in there, but man, there goes your your uh, PG that may be too intense <laughs> for children, right? Especially in the seventies. But the you know yeah. what. I've always heard the book's not as good as the film and there's some mobster elements to it, which I mean, I thought it was kind of, I, I, I wasn't a big fan of that part, but the first chapter after I read that, I'm like, why is everyone thinking the book's not as good? And I, I read the rest, but <laughs> I mean, that first chapter alone, holy shit. And I did hear that there were a lot of hands involved with um, the book, uh, which kind of makes me, it feels like it was written by different people that there's no co- coercion cohesion with it. I don't know how to say that word. There's, there's no blending of, of different voices. Uh, that's only going off of what Jan said and other people that I've heard talk about that. Uh, Brennan, go ahead, bud. Oh, so I, I, I wanted to kind of go back to uh, that whole idea of the paperback spin and racks in the eighties, which I'm, you know, a, a little too young for and intensely jealous of. So, I mean, we've had people talk before about how the 80s just had that nice boom and the 90s died. So, you know, what's what's your impression of that? Is that kind of how you felt? Yeah, I mean, and, and just hearing about it anecdotally from folks like like Skip and Lansdale and, you know, that you could casually have a paperback come out and move a million, you know, in that marketplace. And uh, like Robert McKeeman, I forget which book it was. Um, it was one of the ones after they thirst, but some, one of his books, they actually did on Hollywood Boulevard, like a billboard, you know, they were, they were throwing that kind of budget at just, you know, like horror paperbacks and stuff. So just a, just a totally different, different beast and an interesting time. I mean, look at the, the, um, what was your media competition back then? It was like Betamax, <laughs> a Nintendo entertainment system. Like, like there was pretty good stuff, but the level of media you're in competition with now, too, as far as people's willingness of what they want to absorb culturally, um, you know, it was it was a slightly more homogenized market and books were, you know, a major factor, too. So it was like that's the place you were getting kicks that you couldn't even with, especially like Clyde Barker and stuff. That was stuff you couldn't get in film even for a long time. You know, it was really transgressive at the time and and uh, and just so so far out there and um you know, it felt like it felt like really adventuresome territory at the time. Uh, and they were, I think we're just publishing everything they could get their hands on, too. You know, we always wonder about some writers now, like, gosh, if they could have if they could have popped out in that 80s market, you know, what would their stature be now? Where would they be sitting in the in the literary marketplace? Um, you know, if that was that kind of vanguard. Bernie and I have had to stop privately off here about how there's got to be. 
I don't even know how many people, but at this point in time, we're talking a lot of people that have all this potential to blow up and be put in whoever you want to think about Barker or, or, you know, um, Shirley Jackson or whomever. It's a neat idea because all of us, like I said, we're one degree away from knowing that person Um, from Stephen King down. Um, If we don't know him, we know, you know, Shizmar or Vincent or, or someone else, but I think it's interesting to, to think about that. Like, who would be having that liter, literary stature 20 years from now? I mean, you could throw names out there, but it, it's just fun to play with stuff like that. Or if you want to do what you said, throw like Josh Mallerman, throw yourself, Paul Tremblay, Laird Barron, um, you know, whoever else back in the 80s. It'd be real interesting to kind of play with those timelines. You should do that in a book. <laughs> don't you fucking don't, don't you hate when some asshole tells you what you should write about in a book? It's just like fucking write it yourself, dude. Well, and then I'm always like, well, now I can never write that because then it's going to get weird. So, <laughs> <laughs> you know what? I, I wasn't planning on asking. So please don't don't tell me the idea unless you have already like partially written that yourself. <laughs> I, I am wondering. I am wondering if at any point you have had someone that isn't a writer kind of put you in a weird spot about writing books where they talk about how they've always wanted to write a book or, or how me, I'll throw an example of me. I was writing in a waiting room of a doctor's office and the lady next to me, cause it was very cramped pre COVID times. Uh, she looked over my shoulder and was watching me write. And I felt, I felt naked. That was a weird experience. <laughs> I wonder yeah. if either one of you have ever, experienced that with uh let's just call them the normies <laughs> um i i definitely is like i'm on the pta at my kid's school and i read to all the kids there and stuff and and then i also worked in banking for 13 years so i have two personas you know on the weekends i go off to festivals and i put on my little black t-shirt and, and live in like the whore world but then you know there's these other realms where there's almost like a weird stigma around it. You know, people are yeah. like, Oh, what do you, what do you write? And then you're like, Oh, you know, horror fiction, dark stuff. And they're like, and then their one touch point is always like, Oh, so Stephen King stuff. Uh, yeah. They're like, and then and it's always some assenting comment. They're like, Oh, that guy's weird. That's too much. And then you're like, are you judging me by, <laughs> you know? Um, so, so it's always been for me, just keeping a point of separation. And then every once in a while you meet somebody that finds out you're a writer and they're like, you know what? I have a fascinating life story. You should start taking notes right now. You got to listen to this. And then they tell you something that's kind of a universal experience. And you're like, no, that's not, that's not a hook. Like I, you know, you won't believe it. One time I got mad at a guy for true store. It's like, I don't, <laughs> like, what am I going to do with that? You know? Um, so it happens sometimes. If, if somebody ever stopped me and, was, and started like, you know, telling me a story that was pure gold, I'd be like, yeah, wait, a, let me get, let me get a recorder. Let's, let's go in on this, you know? That's yeah. not usually how it works. No, absolutely. And then maybe just kind of flub some lines and make it your own. <laughs> Take all the money. I don't know. Uh, Brennan, jump in, man. Let's talk about the loop real no, quick. No, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So, Jeremy, you, you kind of told us how you got your uh, start in your, your interest in, in horror fiction. Um, so what made you want to become a writer? my teachers kind of encouraged me. And at the time that was the way I experienced horror, right? Like, you know, it was renting Nightmare on Elm Street and whatever, whatever they'd let me take out at the video store. But the primary way I experienced it almost every day was just my, I was like, this is what I love. Um, can I engage with this? How, how can I work um, 
with my own skills and try and try and make something that would be interesting to me, you know, just that desire to, to replicate behavior that <laughs> made me happy to see if I could tell stories. Um, and then just in essence, like, you know, started doing that and, and, um, teachers, you know, for better or worse, kept encouraging all, all along the way. And, um, I just kept doing it and, and never could figure out how to stop. So <laughs> it, it was one of those things where once the ball started rolling, I just, uh, I've always felt a compulsion towards it, you know, for better or worse, you're stuck basically. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, Too bad. <laughs> Cause the moment, the moment I stopped writing I'm like, you know what, I'm going to take a, a real hiatus, refocus on this or do this. Um, there's an instant kind of pull that happens at, at your brain and your heart when you're not doing it. Um, so, um, you know, they can turn into almost a, a sense of psychosis. Like there's a weird kind of psychological displacement that happens when I'm not writing. Um, that feels instantly rewarded when I am creating work. So uh, just, you know, it's a, it's a compulsion at this point. That's not bad. So do you try to write every day as, you know, squeeze in the hours? What, what do you generally do to meet that compulsion? Um, for me, it's um, I do I do binge writing in essence. So when I, when I do write, um, I like to just lock myself in somewhere and write for 10 hours straight, you know? Um, so that's, that's my preferred mode. I've done a scheduled mode before where I had an Excel spreadsheet and, you know, you need 1200 words a day, et cetera, and keep up with your tracking and, and all that. And it just, um, to me, it wasn't as exciting. I wasn't as engaged with the work. Um, but it did produce work, which is cool. You know, that setting those kinds of goals can be valuable, but my preference is to get into a, um, lock myself into a trailer or an office or a hotel room and go into a kind of a fugue state, you know, no stimulus around me, big pile of notes for whatever I'm working on to the right. Um, some pizza and beer waiting for me when I'm about to pass out and then just, just write, you know, try to write six to 8,000 words in a given stretch on a weekend. Um, cause I find emotionally, the longer I'm writing one particular thing, um, the more I can carry the tone of it, the less I have to, to do to come back to that space where I'm telling the story I wanted to tell. Um, and, and I find that really rewarding to just be kind of in that, in that zone, uh, even though it's really awful for your, your body. Like <laughs> it's just an awful physical behavior to be sedentary for that long, for that many days straight um, and isolated. But in the end, I'm always so happy with, you know, having done the work that, that I kind of love that method. Um, since I had a kid, there's no, it's like, it's kind of chaos. Now um, I've tried to stick to a rigorous schedule, but um, <laughs> kids have a funny way of making plans um, obsolete, like instantaneously. So yeah, uh, yeah I've, always, I've attempted to do that, uh, but it's uh, locking myself in a hole somewhere works better. <laughs> How old's your kid? Uh, he's 11 now. So he's, he's a, uh, Definitely, oh, uh, uh, I don't know, more of a human being than they are when they're little. You know, <laughs> like they're they're, they're kind of the um, more reactive and less predictable. And now he's like a, a re he's past the age of reason and he's entertaining and uh, he's kind of getting into spooky stuff now too. So we're starting to share that. Uh, he's really into like the creepy pastas and SCPs and and um, the the big most credit I ever got with him my whole life was telling him I know the guy who created Siren Head, you know, the monster that Trevor yeah. Henderson made. So yeah. um, I was like, I know an internet thing, bro. I like that guy. So uh, <laughs> uh, pretty, pretty cool that we're, we're finally able to share that stuff. And uh, he makes me a little 
t-shirts at Christmas with like my novels on the, on the front uh-huh. and stuff that I keep, which is pretty, you can't wear shirts of your own book out in public anyway, but I, I still love them. I wear them around the house. Yeah. <laughs> I would, <laughs> before I was going to go to scares, I care the first time, but it was canceled due to COVID. Um, it was before anyone knew of this show and before it started, I was like, I want to wear a deadhead space shirt there. <laughs> and then luckily got a backtrack. Luckily I didn't do that due to COVID canceling scares. I care. And um, a year went by and we had a season and a half in and I was like, fuck that shit. I'm going to wear the normal, like I wear Led Zeppelin shirts all the time in Hawaiian shirts. That's why they're there. So, yeah, I agree. I was just bringing that up because uh, I feel like the first impression of me would have been uh, some jackass wearing a jackass shirt. And you, know, <laughs> you can't change your first impression of someone. Objectively. I try to rep, like this, this is a Cody Goodfellow shirt. Like I try to rep other writers when I go out. Yeah. Uh, um, and and luckily, there you know there was a market for that for a while. There was this um, company called Scurvy Inc. that was making a bunch of awesome like you know custom art uh, T-shirts for for different books and stuff. So whenever I see one that's book oriented, I'm like, okay, that's that's my jam. That's my nerd shirt, you know. I keep um, hearing his name now, Co- Cody Goodfellow. Fellow. I keep oh, yeah. hearing him with so many different collaborations, so many different uh, anthology he's he's been in the last I think two years now. Of, it's been pretty, uh, pretty much all over the place. I he's he's got- on my list of people that that I still think are going to break through. So I've, I've got this peg list of people who, when things go well for them, it feels like the universe is kind of clicking into the right right place. Um, so like when I saw Brian Evanson got a you know a profile in New York Times, I was like, click, okay, that's a, that's a, a right thing. And then you know Adam breaking through with clown in the court field the same year the Stephen Graham Jones broke through with the only good Indians was, was huge just because I was like, you know, coming up with the, those guys watching their just impeccable work ethic, the care they put into their craft, um, the way they are able to engage and do all the other business stuff that relates around writing on top of their art. Um, you know, I was like, that's, that's fantastic. And then the next one that I think is, is about to uh, next person I th- think is going to blow up is a uh, Gabino Iglesias. Yeah. Uh, he's got a, a crime novel coming out through Mulholland, but anybody who knows his stuff knows it's, it's, you know, it's right in that interstitial space with crime and horror. And this one's no different. This one's just totally brutal. Uh, but now it's going to have a mainstream release. And I think um, he is just hardwired to, uh, to kind of explode even with how dark that book is. So uh, fingers crossed. And then, and then Cody Goodfellow has been putting in some of the best work in the industry for years. You know, he's got a, a writer's writer's reputation, right? Like, you know, all the other writers are like, Oh my God, Cody just kills me line by line. You know, yeah. uh, and the, the level of his ideas and, and uh, his creativity and stuff. Um, and we used to, um, when I'd meet other people, be that we'd call ourselves Kodiaks, like these people that were just the, you know, Oh my God, Cody's the best, <laughs> you know? So um they're rare, but when you meet somebody else that has like read the breadth of Cody's work and you can freak out with them, you know, about it, it's, it's wonderful. Cause he's, he's absolutely one of, one of our best writers going. That's great. Yeah. And shout out to Gabino. We love him, man. He's uh, we're, we're gonna, we don't know when, but we're going to have him on next year for that book. Can't, can't yeah. wait. Brennan looked like you had something to say earlier. Uh, no, I said, yeah, I agree. Gabino is, is wonderful. No, before um, that, way before that. 
Okay. Um, actually, I, I, I'm, I'm going to bring us all the way back for my own morbid curiosity. I don't know if any of our listeners will care about this, but I do. So we're going there. Um, you know, I, it, it interests me so much when somebody can just sit down and work for eight to 10 hours at a time, because I'm just straight up not built like that. So I, I'm curious, you know, how clean is that? Like when you when you go back over it, does it look like an absolute madman wrote it or like, can you, have you kind of trained yourself to get that out pretty well in the first draft? Um, when I very first started doing it, I was doing it on a deadline for the world work convention, 2005. And I, there was a novella I wanted to have out and it was also supposed to be part of this anthology. Um, and I remember just everything was so tight to get it done and so I made a bet with two friends. We all said, hey, uh, go into your bedroom this weekend, come out with 20,000 words, uh, which was ridiculous. Everybody was going to come out with a novella. And uh, we each bet $100. So if anybody missed out, they were going to have to pay 200 bucks out to the other, the other guys. Um, just to ensure we hit this deadline and we're able to do promo for World Poor. And um, man, that book turned out a little rough for me because I did got by, by the third day, the sleep deprivation was setting in. Um, the sentence by sentence writing was getting sloppy. I had a, a significant outline and I started altering the whole third act just cause I literally passed out at my keyboard, you know, and popped back up to, you know, just a run of text sitting there. Um, and that was one of those where there, there almost wasn't enough editing to fix it in my mind. Like, you know, it, just the damage had been done by a brain that wasn't wholly there. Um, so I don't try for 20,000 anymore because that did turn out, um, yeah, it got kind of garbagey, you know, shooting shooting on the fly like that. So now, now I try to do six to eight thousand in a week, which to me is substantive, um, but it lets me get just enough sleep in pockets uh, to where I'm cognizant, my brain is is there, you know. And then I, between that and energy drinks and coffee, I can really stay stay up and and uh, keep it going. But yeah, it can totally it can totally turn into garbage if you don't sleep. That's that's the biggest piece I've learned. Like you, just enough sleep and just enough food can get you through there. You do have to sleep. Yeah. <laughs> just to yeah. be clear, just to be clear, Jeremy's not a doctor. This is not good health advice. <laughs> yeah. No. Yeah. I mean, you can you can pull a Kerouac too. You can just get a bunch of amphetamines and just you know hand draw a scroll for twelve days straight if you want to. But again, physically poor and and it gets real sloppy. Yeah. Just like Unless you're in the stream of consciousness stuff. Could live just like the monks used to do before the printing press. So that's advice that I'm hearing from you right now. Live like illustrating manuscripts is cool as hell. Yeah, guys, is. that was that. I bet they were in like a totally meditative state too, just like little doodles in the periphery, and they were like, "How cool can I make this D at the beginning of the chapter look?" And stuff. I love that, man. Man, we just never by candlelight. Yeah. yeah, you you realize how much fucking detail and focus on one page, never or one character, never mind on an entire book that you got to do. That's some serious focusing right there. Those dudes had nowhere else to be. <laughs> <laughs> they weren't out trying to get laid. They weren't like working on the yard. They weren't. They were just like, well, it's just me and God and this pen. Like here we go. <laughs> I'm benching out here, yeah. Let's Pretty make cool. that, and of all the letters, he picks the D. Let's make that D look good. The fanciest D. <laughs> Flowers growing out of it. <laughs> I love that stuff. Yeah, man. Calligraphy is beautiful, and it's not a, I mean, I'm not saying it's not practicing, or obviously it is, but it's just, it doesn't seem like now that the internet's here and word processors rule the world. I don't even know how to read cursive that well anymore. And I was taught that <laughs> shit in grammar school. 
No, I taught it to my kid last year because I was like, you got to be able to like sign documents. Yeah, at a minimum, I need you to know how to write your name in cursive. Because if you go to sign a mortgage and you're printing it all in bold, they're going to be like, sir, you you don't have the mental wherewithal to like have a mortgage. You know, it's like you got to know one, just two, just two words, just your name in cursive, my dude, and you'll be good. But yeah, it's our. It's arcane. Like I, I used to, I used to write, write stuff by hand and then edit stuff by hand too, and rewrite like 19 pages, um, and then transcribe it into a laptop because I was still trying to make that adjustment from you know typing to from handwriting to typing. Yeah. And man, handwriting stuff. I know there's still advocates for it out there. I think John Langan still does it. I know, I know there's people out there that still Ramsey do it. Campbell still uh, does to me, it. Yeah, physically unpleasant to me. Like you know, your wrist gets <laughs> sore, hand gets all inky. Like typing, typing's just faster, man. Yeah, I think of guys like uh, Herman Melville that wrote out Moby Dick, or um, I can't think of the guy's name, the, um, Jekyll and Hyde. I can't think of that author. Stevenson. Yeah, whatever it is, back you know those authors back then, they write you know every damn thing. Uh, that's craziness to me. And I know that Clyde Barker, he did a recent interview with uh, Mick Garris. He said that he hand wrote a. If not all of his drafts, most of them, and we're talking about like a Magica, and that's like, oh my god! I mean that that's so big. That is a yeah. massive book, and he 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 wrote out like multiple drafts for that that manuscript. <laughs> I can't even picture that. That, that. that seems monumental. That dude's got some energy. Yeah, that that seems like life's work in and of itself. Just <laughs> writing out that book like three four yeah. times. The greatest thing is that he's finally. Yeah, because that's one of those back. where the paper is like that that quarter millimeter rice paper, and the font size is like a two. When you're reading it, you're like, I gotta be careful yeah. with this book, and I gotta get my <laughs> put my bifocals on. The best part yeah. is that that Clyde Barker's coming back, and I hope that it's yeah. I hope it's with kind of a vengeance, both in the well. Point. And somebody was telling me today he's about to get the rights to um, all the centibytes and stuff back finally. From, yeah. from those initial film deals, um, you know, so that stuff comes back to, I mean, on, on both a filmic level and a writing level, you know, for him to finally retain control of that and would be pretty cool. You know, I know he was able to work with it a little bit on Scarlet Gospels, but yeah, we'll see what he does. Hellbound Heart. I mean, that's still, I read that years ago and that book still fucks with me. That The, the, the detail, the way he handles sensory uh, details, uh, the way he makes you feel this pain that most of us writers, you know, struggle to, to reach at that level. It's just insane. He makes it look so effortless. I I love Barker. Well, and the way he, you know, the way he would like eroticize stuff too, you know, as a, as a kid growing up in Bend, Oregon, culturally, I had zero touch points for like the (laughs) S and MC, you know what I'm saying? Like zero. (laughs) I said, maybe watching like from beyond was like as close as I'd ever got to that. And so you know, all of a sudden, you know, I'm, I'm sitting on my dad's lazy boy reading Hellbound Heart. And I'm just thinking, ah, is this hot? I kind of feel like some of this stuff is is hot. Like it would be. <laughs> and I'm like, but that seems also very inappropriate. I'd just be like sitting in a lazy boy blushing, you know, at like 10. So, <laughs> yeah. you know, I always felt that way. Whenever I, I would whenever I would have to travel with like Barker or Poppy Z. Bride or something, I'd be like, for love of God, like, if I'm asleep and my mom flips through this book, I'm screwed forever. You know, it was very like uh, the uh, sexual stuff was very taboo in my family in the eighties. Like I was allowed to watch horror movies, but if they had nudity scenes in them, my mom would tape over them. So like I had a VHS dub of Nightmare on Elm Street three 
and there's a scene where the nurse after um the nurse is trying to seduce joey in the mental hospital right yeah, she removes her top yeah well freddie killing joey was okay but that woman's breasts were taboo and so my mom actually taped a portion of another tv show over that scene with the breasts and so for just briefly she was like oh don't you don't you like me joey and she starts to open her shirt and it would cut to ronald reagan's state of the world address which was even more disturbing and it would be reagan for like two minutes and then it would cut back to joey strapped to the bed by four tongues and i was like i don't know what's happening here but that whatever that's it's far more disturbing this way did you start um, to get confused as to why you're getting turned on by Ron Reagan? Ron, right, Ronald exactly. Reagan's wrinkly old face. It created a lot of sublimated issues. Yeah, it probably wasn't probably wasn't great for me. Maybe yeah. an old man thing. <laughs> you know what's neat is correct me if I'm wrong, but books is like one of the only art forms that that do not have a rating system. Like music, you got parental advisory stickers on that. For movies, you got the rating system. Since the 90s, dude, I think it was Mortal Kombat. Um, you you got a, a, I forget who's in charge of that, but the rating system for that, which I didn't know for the longest time, but there are X-rated games. I never saw them, but um, yeah, M's not the highest. And you don't have that for books. And that's because we've talked with a lot of writers and a lot of them basically have said, and they flat out said it too, is it's they're easy to come by the the adult content because first off, most of the, most parents that aren't readers are not going to read through the book. To right. Um, and especially back then, when all this grew up before the internet, you're not going to how the hell are you going to know? So it's just an interesting concept because. Books can paint a bigger and broader picture than than movies can or anything else. So I, I I'm just I don't know where this is going, but I just find it very interesting. This is why I love books because it's just I don't know for lack of a better phrase, it's it could be the most damaging or the most uh, inducing to your creativity than any other art form. No, they they definitely have the most. Uh the broadest scope of what I've experienced in the arts, like the, the range of things you can feel engaging with books to me is broader than, than anything else. I mean, cinema comes close. Cinema is a whirlwind, man, because it has that storytelling. It has that imagery for your, your, you know, visual cortex. And then when you add in music, man, that pure, like just gut level sensation you get from music, like people nod their heads, right. Right. When beats hit, you know, it's, it's physiological change. You go in next to music, uh, you know, and, for cinema to have that all that working together, I've always had that argument inside my head, like which thing am I the most passionate about? Which thing do I feel the most? But man, I've had absolutely transcendent, like time disappearing experiences with books um, in, in a way that I couldn't have had with anything else. And the depth of experience of character and um, a depth of kind of empathy uh, that, that I haven't got outside of that and, and range of experience and interiority too. That's what books can do so much. Like, like um, Hubert Selby's books, exist almost physical things happen in them but they exist so intensely in the emotions and in the mind that that that's something that the film hasn't necessarily been able to do with me even at its best so um yeah and i'm glad they weren't regulated it was <laughs> you know i i did i i the stuff i thought was the worst the stuff i thought i'd get in trouble for i had hidden with the cassette tapes that had the pmrc labels down in the corner of the closet right <laughs> so i've got like ice cubes guest certificate 
and I've got, you know, Skip Inspectors and Scream, <laughs> and I've got Soul on Ice, and I've got Naked Lunch down there, and it's like my trouble box. It's under a bunch of marbles and shit, because that division between, like, child and adult is so weird, you know, <laughs> transitioning through adolescence. You know, like, I'll just, I'll just hide all these nasty books and tapes under my, like, you know, collection of marbles. So... Yeah, I'm, I'm glad. I mean, they have banned books, right? That's the closest we get to it is like a culture yeah. or a society or an uptight group saying that that book is out in this community. Um, but now it's more just, I don't know, people fussing at each other on Twitter. Like it's a, it's the social conventions. You know, people try to uh, to rate books as far as their their inherent quality and how they affect people psychologically now but it's that's that's so limited that's just like are you a twitter person then it affects you you know yeah um, i mean like, in general yeah um like i was saying most of the listeners that i've realized don't listen to the show or are not a part of at least the twitter circles that like all three of us are which is fine um I don't want to live and die on one platform ever. Uh, but Brennan, you know what, man? I had a point and I'm losing focus on it because I'm jumping all over the place with my notes. So can you please jump in? Yeah, I mean, you were going in depth and intricate and introspective. And I'm just I'm, I'm still thinking of Ronald Reagan coming in. Uh, <laughs> over the naughty bits of the tape. We are way past that. That uh, doesn't matter. I'm still. I'm still ruminating on it. Um, that's the funniest goddamn thing I've ever heard. <laughs> All right. So, uh, Jeremy. Be like uh, a family uh, guy moment right there. Yeah. It's a Seth MacFarlane type of situation. <laughs> All right. I'll shut up. Go ahead. I, I was going to say, we, you, you had the loop come out just over a year ago. So let's talk a little bit about that. Um, give us kind of the uh, the back cover, the elevator pitch. Oh, um, mine, mine before Simon Schuster got a hold of it was just uh, Days of Confused Days of Confused meets 28 Days Later, right? So it's a bunch of kids driving around and talking and uh, kind of dealing with the end of the school year, uh, but there happens to be a biotech outbreak that turns most of the town murderous. Um, so that's that was the general pitch. You know, it's um, very film influenced, you know, and there's a ton of uh, John Carpenter touch points in there. Like there's one scene where I tried to smash together like Assault on Precinct 13 and Prince of Darkness and the thing uh, kind of all in one rolled up piece. Um, and so, yeah, I, it's, it's funny because, you know, I primarily read horror literature, but with this particular novel, a lot of the touch points were, were filmic for me. It just it just felt like. That was the place I, I wanted to come from and uh, the kind of vibe I wanted to, to go for. You know, it takes place in a very short period of time. It takes Aside from the intro, it mostly takes place within 24 hours. Um, and then, I don't know, the, the, less, the more esoteric pitch would be it's kind of, um, I don't know, a coming of age version of Jack Ketchum's off season in a way, <laughs> which sounds gnarly, but it is gnarly. Like, you know, it's kind of how the book operates. So, yeah. Um, yeah, that was the gist of it. I, I always wanted to do a, uh, you know, a biotech outbreak story. Um, and I also really love Resident Evil 4. It's one of my favorite games of all time. So the idea of setting setting an outbreak in like a small village um, I love and that having game. that mix of like the metaphysical and, and parasites and stuff like that was really appealing to me. So it's just stuff I was excited about, you know. That was big. That, that was like GameCube's huge the seller yeah. back in the day, man. I fucking love that game. 
it holds up still. I have a version of it on the, uh, we got a retro Wii cause my kid wanted to play Wii sports. And I was like, during COVID, I was like, we're not getting outside enough. I guess that counts as like athletics. So, so we got Wii sports and then I was at the GameStop with him and I saw resident evil four for like 12 bucks. I was like, yes, this is happening. It's <laughs> Brian, still great. It is. But before we jump in real quick, funny anecdote, my mother-in-law actually injured herself She's fine. She injured herself on the Wii Sports, like going a little too hard on it. And uh, it's something funky with her hip. She didn't get seriously injured. So it, was, it was pretty funny. To, it was pretty funny when my wife told me about that phone call. Oh, my gosh. I mean, I've heard of Wii injuries. I know people smack each other all the time playing tennis, <laughs> you know, and take out their TVs. But uh, you got to be pretty vigorous to bust a hip with that one. Uh, I can I see it happening, though. Like, you know. I'm the, I'm, bowling, the, maybe. <laughs> I'm the one to talk about this, but uh, yeah, she ain't the uh, most athletic person out there. Say, say lovey. Yeah. We sports, <laughs> we sports is, we sports is exactly as intense as you want it to be. That's what yeah. we figured out. Like you can, you can play it from the couch, lazy style, you know, eating a cupcake, or you can actually do full tennis swings and stuff. And it just, it's, it's a mood based thing, but uh, yeah, it's yeah. a good system. Yeah. Yeah. I, I remember more than one time in um, must have been around college, I suppose. Um, timing works out for that. Uh, getting a few too drink too many drinks in me and uh, playing myself in Wii tennis, one one remote on <laughs> each wrist. And that's you know, if we want to know how you get injuries, like I don't think I ever did, but that's definitely how you would go about it. How do you not at least clack the controllers together trying to battle you? Oh my goodness. No, that's a, yeah. that's a terrible idea. I'm glad you survived. <laughs> uh, it, with flying colors. Um, uh, so anyways, going back, um, you know, I, I like that you mentioned uh, how many uh, of the influences on the book were cinematic because I, I couldn't really put my finger on it until you said it, but it's, it's got that coming of age element to it, but for whatever reason, it just, it, it really, Brings more with like kind of the, uh, you know, teenagers of the 1980s that you'd see in in a film, like something like Breakfast Club or Outsiders than, um, than what, what we're typically seeing in like coming of age horror. So, I mean, was that a consideration? Oh, that was, that was overt. That was super intentional. So the first book I read, first two things I consumed when I knew I wanted to write The Loop were I went back through and read The Outsiders. Um, cause I knew I was going to, this was going to be my snitching on my hometown book too, which I grew up in a really economically divided town. So the outsiders, man, when they were talking about the socials and the socials and the greasers and stuff, it was like, okay, this, this really spoke to me. Um, and so I wanted to do, you know, especially now, it, you know, talking about class division and economics, it's still, you know, it's never not been contemporary, right? It's always, it's always with us and it's maybe worse now than it was then. So, um, you know, that just felt like something I wanted to revisit. And man, that book still, you know, I, I went and I read that. And then I watched uh, the 70s version of Invasion of the Body Snatchers because I knew I wanted to do something about, OK, what happens when a town or a city is gradually taken over by something that isn't quite human? And I, I really think the 70s one, Abel Ferrara's version is good, but that 70s one has the right level of creep to it, you know. Um, and so, no, that was definitely kind of where it was coming from. Um as far as the teenagers also just kind of being messy and being fuck ups and, you know, uh, like Larry Clark's kids a little bit, <laughs> you know, they were, um, definitely not 
the Stranger Things kids. It's it's not this nostalgic, sweethearted view of of what the '80s kids were like. You know, um, I, I wanted it to be a little more um, realistic and have have these kids be flawed and struggling with their own issues even before everybody started killing each other. Um, so that that uh, that tone is definitely a piece of it, and also it's just inherent because like I love Night of the Creeps. Um, you know, <laughs> there's a lot of, a lot of the uh, '80s films with, you know, kids fighting something that invaded their town that I just totally loved. So yeah, it's, it's, it's my genre. It's my biggest genre mashup as far as, is trying to put as much stuff as I love into one book and then still have it, have it kind of rip and not feel convoluted. Yeah. Messy definitely works. I'm glad you threw that one out there. Um, uh, versus the, like you said, the more kind of neat nostalgia of, of a stranger things. Um, now, wasn't this book billed or uh, maybe um, pitched as as YA at some point? Am I making that up? Yeah. So the the way way back, um, I got contacted by my long suffering agent who <laughs> keeps getting all my weirdest books, and she's like, "When are you going <laughs> to give me something I can sell in New York?" Um, and uh, she sent me an email, and she said, "Hey, listen." Uh, I'd sent her Skullcrack City and she was like, this is still too fucking crazy for New York. See what you can do with it on the independent scene, continue to build your platform. And she's like, in the meantime, have you ever considered writing YA horror? She'd been getting these six figure advances for YA stuff at the time. The market was starting to heat up. Um, and I was like, well, honestly, it was compelling to me because I like the idea of restrictions. So the idea of like, you know, like Dogma 95 here are limitations placed on how you can express yourself and how can you subvert that and how can you get away with that? And what will those limitations do to the nature of your art? I thought was a really cool idea. So I was like, you know what, I'm going to give it a go and uh, send me some of what you've been selling and I'll read those and I'll kind of see how YA is functioning these days. Um, which it turns out it's that a lot of kids just go out for like milkshakes together and every once in a while somebody cries, maybe somebody gets a hand job. People are upset a lot of the time. Like it had certain like like why it had a certain vibe. It had certain pieces that I would every book I'd be like, oh that happens. Uh, kids look in mirrors a lot and have feelings. I don't know. So um, I told myself, okay, I can try and do this, but I want to do something you know, a small town invasion of the body snatchers kind of piece. And in the meantime, Skullcrack City came through and just just blew up. Like nobody expected it. My editor. I didn't expect it. Nobody expected Skullcrack City to do what it did. It was the most pleasant surprise. Um, and all of a sudden my agents getting contacted by, you know, executive editors at big four shops and they're asking, they're like, Hey, can he give us another skull crack city? But that isn't crazy, which it seems so wrong to me. They were like, tell him to do what he does, but also dilute it so we can put it out. And I was like, well, then why would, you know, why would you think it worked that time, but it won't work another time. Um, and so she wrote me and she said, Hey, you still working on that YA thing? And I was like, yeah, I've kind of got it going. I've got an outline. And she's like, do whatever you want with it now. It doesn't have to be YA. Go in, do your thing. And once I realized I kind of had carte blanche, I got way weirder with it. So yeah, it started, the germ of it was YA. Um, and then it kind of bloomed into, okay, if I didn't have any restrictions and I just wanted to talk about these messed up kids, what story would I tell? Um, and so, yeah, it's definitely, it's still got some YA vibes. It definitely Definitely has that, especially towards the beginning before it goes, you know, full chaos. So I, I'm curious because it's what's so interesting to me about YA and, you know, particularly YA horror is 
it doesn't have a set definition, you know, like if I, if I had to put my own on it, I, I mean, clown in a cornfield you mentioned earlier is a perfect example. Um, that doesn't fit. I think what I would have, um, what, how I would have described YA before I read that book. It's, it's vicious as hell. Uh, you know, Adam doesn't hold back on the uh, language or anything like that. Uh, there are no hand jobs in it. I don't think, unless I'm misremembering. <laughs> Uh, and, and truth be told, that's actually kind of the one thing that I think of as, you know, uh, real YA doesn't it doesn't usually, um, you know, go sexy time. Um, so what's your kind of definition? Um, you know, it's so it's so so Becky Spratford, you know, that writes for, for Library Journal and Kirkus. She basically told me because I was talking to her about what are what are these thin lines that divide YA and, and standard horror and stuff. Um, and she, she was telling me in essence, there are very few limits. It kind of just depends on the marketing angle that the press chooses to take. Um, a lot of times they'll approach it simply because it has young characters. I think that's where, um, with the loop, we had people, um, complaining out of the gate about how inappropriate it was for a YA title. And so I had to come back and say, no, this is, this is YA the same way that like kids or Carrie is YA. It's a fucked up horror novel that happens to have teen protagonists. Um, but there is that that section of the market now that just sees teenager and instantly thinks YA. Um, and so it's kind of placed a stigma on teen characters um, that you have to kind of override or, you know, sell it as a straight up literary thing. Um, but in horror, yeah, it's a, it's a tough line to draw. And I think you can pretty much get away with whatever you want. And then if that's the label New York puts on it, then it's officially YA. Uh, if they think they can work within that um, YA market and that readership too. That readership is, is uh, it's kind of its own subculture and has its own demands and, and desires and is hypercritical of, you know, um, whatever's happening kind of in contemporary politics instantly impacts the YA community and, and is then, you know, pushed onto what the books should be. Uh, so it's a, it's a dicey field, I think, to work in. And I was almost, you know, grateful to have been allowed to just do a straight up horror novel that had kids in it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, That's, that's interesting because I don't think I've really ever considered, you know, uh, certainly seen the different definitions, but never kind of come back to the publisher, you know, fuck all the other stuff. It's the publisher decides. Cause if you go by those loose definitions, I mean, realistically you could put the girl next door into YA and like shit. I, I'm just not sure it belongs there. Um, yeah, Mrs. Smith. No, exactly, exactly. That one, that one uh, would be beyond the pale, right? That one, that's one of those where it would be that clear line, like you know, you know, pornography when you see it, you know, a Jack Ketchum novel when you when you read it. Um, you're you're for sure that's not YA, even though it has. Oh my god, there's some passages that feel like 100% Bradbury. You know, when they're on the the Ferris wheel and stuff like that. And there's these moments in between where there's this like very Bradbury and like nostalgic sweetness in between all the torture. So, um, you know, he kind of nailed a lot of YA vibes. He also just like nails a stake in the heart of humanity. Like it's brutal. I was going to say, it sounds like if we let you keep talking, you might be able to talk yourself into the girl next door being a YA novel. Yeah. no, (laughs) No, again, that would just, that would have to be their market. Well, I mean, look at, um, Man, until until this new horror kind of boom hit across the last couple of years, um, everybody's spine said thriller or suspense, all the horror novelists. Um, so, for example, like um, uh, my last collection, Entropy and Bloom, was filed under suspense, thriller and sci-fi. 
And so I ended up in the sci-fi section at Barnes and Noble next to um, N.K. Jemison. Totally different vibes. Love and respect her work, but Entropy and Bloom and, and, and you know, her work are not the same kind of beast at all. And so, you know, uh, in the last couple, just within the last year, you know, Barnes and Noble was like, here's a horror section again. And, um, Old you know, they started, <laughs> I, I had heard it. Uh, they actually had a meeting at Simon and Schuster and they said, we're going to start putting horror on our spines again. Um, it was, it was kind of like forbidden for a while as a marketing tack, you know, they were like uh, the Joe Hill books. I'll still say, I think either suspense or thriller. Um, and so that's, that's how limited or, um, niche the horsing was seen as a while for a while. And, uh, I think it's, it's awesome that it's coming back and people are saying right on its face, you know, this is horror again. Cause those are the sections I grew up in as a kid. That's the first place I went in the bookstore, you know, uh, I'd run straight to it. And then when they like, um, Oh, was it B Dalton's was the first one I went to where they didn't have it. And so you had to go through the entire literary section and look for the author names you knew to find the horror books. And I was like, this is garbage. What's happening here. You'd find them over in mystery and suspense. You're like, you kidding me? You know what? So anyway, I I love that uh, they're letting horror exist now as a marketing thing. You you talked about, this is a good segue. You talked about uh, how the girl next door, (laughs) I've never heard that the girl next door, could theoretically be in YA. So you had a, a beautiful quote from Jack Ketchum, a blurb for a book that I mentioned when we first started talking. That is, We Live Inside You, a collection that came out 2011. Um, that's the book that I didn't realize that uh, I knew you before I knew you. And I, <laughs> I honestly don't know where I got it from, but it was... Way back when my wife and I started dating, so back in 2013, it was around that time. I just like the cover. (laughs) That's what draws me. The cover, you can judge a book by its cover because I've I've read some damn good books by incredibly cool covers. You just, for those that haven't read it, um, look up We Live Inside You. It's it's an excellent book. Before I go any further, um, I just want to read the blurb. From Jack Ketchum, uh, he said, "We live inside you is fucking terrific." Jeremy Robert Johnson is dancing to a way different drummer. He loves language, he loves the edge, and he loves us people. These stories have range in style and wit. This is entertainment and literature. So, I mean, you know, he's just—it's weird to say this for us. But in the general public, I think it's fair to say he's grossly underappreciated um, due to how fucking good that guy was as a writer. Uh, for him to say that to you, I mean, like, that's to me, he's one of the greatest writers ever. I love him. Um, how's that feel to get a blur by him? How did it? I mean, you got that 10 years, almost 11 years ago. How's it feel still? <laughs> oh, a decade um, later. Still, still. I, I just, uh, I mean, the night, I the the arc I sent him of that was in a literal like plastic binder. This is how professional I was back then, and he still fucking read it. Like I literally like printed a cover sheet, and slid it into the plastic, and then hand punched all the paper and sent it to him. I was like, "This is the closest I know to as far as book binding goes." You know, as I at the advent of that, I didn't know how to pre-generate arcs using POD or anything, so I sent him this giant junk pile binder thing of a book, and he responded like two weeks later with that, and I just I was. I was floating around my house, man. I can't tell you how much that meant to me. You know, uh, 
just just what a, a central force in my perception of art and what horror can do um and just such a talented you know craftsman um it just was it was everything i would hope that a, a mentor or a hero would would say about my work in particular because he mentioned the literary aspect and he mentioned the humanity of it and he mentioned those things um that i loved in his work so it was totally just it was like a transcendent it was like you know the top 10 moment for me to, to have, have Dallas like co-sign that weird stuff, you know, especially coming out as an independent author. So um, no, just, just a completely wonderful thing, you know? And also that he threw an F-bomb in it, you know, it was like <laughs> yeah. the second time John Skip threw an F-bomb in one Dallas did. And ever since then, I'm like, I, I wish more writers would swear in their blurbs, man. It just really gives it a, a sense of urgency. <laughs> so, That's um, awesome. No, it was fantastic. And then I, I got to, to meet him in person a number of times after that. And just, um, what a sweet, um, kind, thoughtful, intelligent man. And it gives so much energy back to the literary scene and, and just, just wrote the hell out of some books, even, even like, like, like offspring or, you know, follow-ups and stuff. There, there was a line about, you know, a dead television in a junkyard in like some throw off line. And I just like put the book down, opened it back up and underlined it. And I was, I lost my shit. Like that guy, the guy just, just what a fantastic, elegant writer. Like he could do, these simple sentences, like a lot of people think, oh, I'm just a meat and potatoes guy. Um, when when Dallas would do something simple, he did it with elegance. Like it was, it had an intent. It had such a specific intent as to how it would reach the reader. And I just admire that so much. So yeah, man, that that was a that was the best. I wish I wish that book was still in print, just so that specific blurb could still be out there. <laughs> It's, I mean, going back to the cover, what drew me to it, and I don't know why, even though I owned uh, owned the physical copy, I got the ebook version. Oh, I got big into Kindle when it came out. That's why um, I found it more convenient at the time. I got mixed feelings about Kindles now. I like the feel of a tangible book, but um, I mean, the cover is this parasitic little fucked up creature. The artwork itself is really it. I don't know who the cover artist was for this one, but um, the the color choices are really, they shouldn't work together, but they do. Um, yeah, that's uh, Alex Pardee. So um, I, 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 I had this thing where when I would sit in, um, sit in my favorite tattoo shop, they always had these magazines, Juxtapose and High Fructose that were like kind of pop culture art stuff. I would look through that and I would try mm. to buy my favorite artist. And then um, I would kind of try to save up and see if I could get those guys to do the covers. Cause I was just like, what, what a cool thing to have this art that I really admire on the cover versus trying to spec something out. Um, and so, yeah, it took, it took months to get through to Alex. Um, now he's more accessible. He's on, on Twitter and stuff, but back in the day it was just through his website and, and then convincing him to let me have, uh, you know, that print and get to use it for the book. But I've been super lucky with, um, just, just working with these people kind of outside of the regular horror scene that do do art that happen to have made some great horror art. Uh, Alex specifically does tons of horror related stuff, but like uh, Martin Whitfoot and Jeff Soto, um, just working with these different, uh, Dave Correa, he did the cover to my newest collection, All the Wrong Ideas, and just just a phenomenal artist. Um, but again, he's, he's kind of on the horror scene. Like I'll see him at the HP Lovecraft Festival, um, but he also does like, you know, um, hip hop album covers and his stuff's in heavy metal and things like that. So I just look for for art that I love and find captivating and hope that it'll work well enough on, on book covers. Um, 
versus trying to, to get people to draw stuff that's actually from the book. And so far it's worked out pretty cool. What's Alex's last name? Uh, Pardee, P-A-R-D-E-E. Okay. I, yeah, I haven't heard of him before, but I'm looking at his artwork now and I've had, I've got a, it looks like art that I definitely would have seen somewhere else. I just can't place my finger on it, but you were mentioning magazines and such. And uh, that kind of looks like the place I'd see him in. Um, Brennan, you got anything on any of his other books that you want to discuss at the moment, sir? Actually, I was hoping you'd talk a little bit about all the reissues you just had come out, especially Skullcrack oh, City, which oh, you couldn't yeah. get for less than like $900 <laughs> a couple months ago. Yeah, Skullcrack City got insane. Um, that was that I, I didn't realize how much scarcity drove up the value of a book and how I would never see any of that money from anyone. <laughs> it was awesome watching those things sell. Um, I should have sell on a lot more inventory back in the day. Um, so yeah, Skullcrack City was out, um, uh, in the river was one that was put out through Cameron Pierce's lazy fascist press, uh, maybe like three, four weeks before he, in essence, shut it down. And so there were very few of those out there too. Uh, and that's actually kind of my favorite of, of my own work. That's the one I, I like the, the best. I, I feel like that's the book I got closest to getting right, you know, um, and then all the wrong ideas is the third book that I just reissued. And that one, um, originally we were going to do like a fiction omnibus through nightshade with entropy and bloom. Um, and then I think the editor started to realize that a lot of my stuff wasn't meant for like mainstream consumption, you know, that it was going to be sub distributed by Simon and Schuster and they couldn't put some of what I'd written in there. Um, and so they started making cuts and they were like, there's too many dead kids. There's too many parasites. This isn't even a horror story. This is too fucked up. And so all the wrong ideas is literally that it's like all the stuff that New York just said no to. They were like, no, no, this doesn't, <laughs> we, we can't, we can't put this stuff out there. So it's a, a lot of my like early kind of fucked up formative uh, fiction. Um, and a couple, a couple of my favorite stories that just couldn't fit in the other collection. So now entropy and bloom and all the wrong ideas are kind of the two, two poles, like entropy and bloom is kind of the greatest hits. And then all the wrong ideas is like my B sides and, and weird stuff. Uh, so yeah, all, all three of those books are back out in, uh, in paperback and digital now. And, uh, it's been wonderful having them back out on the market and, um, not seeing people posting, you know, help me get a copy of Skullcrack City or, uh, I saw some poor guy on Reddit. He shelled out a hundred bucks for it. Like the week before it came out in paperback. I was like, man, I should... <laughs> <laughs> like if you would have followed me on Twitter, you would have like known this stuff was coming back. Um, but I think those first editions are still still hopefully worth something. So, you know what, man? I saw it's in your bio, for pretty much any website you go to. But you, it said in 2008 you worked with the Mars Volta. That's a band that my brother got me into. I got their album. I might be butchering the title, but it's a 2003 release of D. Louise and the Comatorium. Um, so you worked with them in 2008 to talk about their Grammy win, winning album, the Bedlam and the Goliath. What exactly does that mean? And how'd you get involved? Um, with so I, I had an opportunity to interview um, Cedric Bixler Zavala, who's the, the lead singer for the group for them. And um, at the drive-in before that, uh, just for a magazine, my friend Jackson out of Vermont ran a magazine that interviewed musicians all the time. And he knew like I was crazy about the Mars Volta. So he hit me up and he was like, Hey, do you, I have universal on the line. Do you want to do an interview? And I was like, Oh my God. Yeah. So I started into the interview and I'm introducing myself and uh, Cedric recognizes 
my name because I was telling him, oh, hey, you know, I really listened to a lot of your music when I was writing this book or whatever, Angel Dust Apocalypse. And he's like, is that the one with the green cover? And I was like, what? And he was like, yeah, I've had that in my backpack this whole tour. They were like out opening for Red Hot Chili Peppers. And he was reading my book on the tour bus and stuff. He was like, this shit's wild. And we kind of, I would just, anyway, I lost my mind. I was like, are you kidding me? And, uh, and then had a great interview, you know, hit it off. He was on a press junket. He's probably talking to like 20 people a day or whatever. And then a year later, um, I get an email from somebody uh, saying they were from Universal and they were like, hey, we're representing Cedric. He's working on another project. He has a writing thing he'd like to do in association with this album. And so I was like, this is bullshit. My friends are fucking with me. There's no way this is real. Like somebody's being really mean right now. I email around to all my friends for like 24 hours. All of them are like, no, dude. And that sounds awesome. You know, so so I got back through and uh, I was working at the bank at the time. And I remember running out to the parking lot of the bank, hopping into the front of my Ford Escort. And he was like, hey, do you want to do a project with us? And I was like, are you kidding me? This is amazing. So he just said, uh, we want to tell a story about how insane it was trying to make this album and how we found this, um, you know, Ouija board in a curio shop in Jerusalem. And we think it was possessed by three different ghosts and, and it was taking vengeance on us and destroyed our album and our bodies in like 20 different ways. And we had to, you know, inter it, like bury it somewhere so it wouldn't uh, harm us anymore. And their other idea was that the, the CD of the album, the CD of the music that was based on this story would like psychologically dissipate the negative energy from it. Like every single person that listened to it or knew the story, it was like it would spread the curse out, you know, yeah. kind of work like he described it like a Ghostbusters trap in reverse. Like, or like the uh, so yeah, kind of. Yeah, I was like, <laughs> let's let's pass this curse everywhere. And so I said, yeah, I'm, I'm your dude and I'll write this up. And and so I wrote this piece for him that was kind of a version of their story, but also a promo thing for the album. And then there was poetry at the end. It was, I just went, I went off. I went crazy. because so I was like, these are weirdos. I got to go as weird as I can on this. And it's still to this date. Like, I think the, the day it came out, 70,000 people read it. And then like by the end, it was like this huge thing. And it was, every, it's still my, the most downloaded file off my website. Um, and then, it was, it was totally awesome. And then we got to go and party with them in San Francisco at New Year's and, and they were like the nicest dudes. Um, and then, and then I had a kid and then he had twins and then kind of stopped like working together. Cause we talked about doing like a weird comic book together too, but um, no, it was a fantastic experience. Just, just out of nowhere, kind of miracle to get to work with one of my top five, you know, favorite bands. Um, and I, I love doing it. And, and then, I did it for free and he still had them cut me a check and full circle. I used that money to buy myself my original Nintendo Wii. All the way back then. <laughs> so yeah, that's the first time I played RE4. So yeah, the Mars Volta funded my love for the Nintendo Wii. That's fucking great. Uh, the Mars Volta is such a fucking weird and cool band because they are a band that you could blast the shit out of all night. Cause they got enough. They, their discography is big enough where you could just, Get stoned off your ass if you want, get whatever, or you could just uh, use it to hype yourself up. They have amp up music up the ass, man. I love yeah. it. I used to, when I was doing marathon training, I had tons of their stuff on because I was like, I needed something to keep me going psychologically. You know, that does it. That does yeah. the trick. Now, I got one more question before we wrap down uh, or wrap it up. Um, Sleepy brain. Sorry. <laughs> tell, tell your ride horror show. Did I say that first word right? Tell you right. Yeah. 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 Right. 
it's spelled phonetically, so I didn't know if I was reading it right. So you got to hang out with Paul Tremblay and Stephen Graham Jones, amongst other people. Tell us about that experience. Um. So, yeah, that was my fifth year uh, attending Telluride Horror Show. And it was amazing. I mean, it's just it's just one of the most surreal, beautiful place on Earth. The festival runs through three theaters and um, about seven years back, they decided to start introducing a literary element to it. So uh, they had, they do this event called the creepy campfire tales on Friday night, where in the town square with the fall leaves blowing through and the mountains in the background and people sitting on all these stone terraces, you um, read creepy stories by a bonfire, which is just the coolest thing. So their first yeah. year it was a uh, Lansdale. Then they had me out. Then um, we hit it off so well. They said, hey, you want to come back and kind of host our literary stuff? And I said, absolutely. Um, <laughs> can we bring out um, Paul Tremblay? And then we had Tremblay out um, right when Cabin at the End of the World was dropping. Mm. And the year after that, we had Kelly Link, which was like a total pleasure. Um, and got to interview her on the top of a bar with the mountains behind, you know, and just a bunch of drunk Coloradans looking at us. And I was like, this lady won a Pulitzer Prize, y'all. This is crazy. Um, <laughs> she's just the coolest lady. And then, uh, and then this year we finally got Jones out. I, I knew he lived in Denver anyway, or yeah, Boulder. Yeah. So I was like, we gotta, we gotta get him over here. Right. Um, and then the only good Indians blew up so hard. It was kind of undeniable. It was like, everybody is trying to get Jones now, you know, that's um, a great book. Yeah. Fantastic book. And uh, so, yeah, all three of us uh, got to creep out an audience on Friday night. And then we did an event called the horror summit on Saturday where we talked about um, kind of just what's happening in modern horror, what scares us uh, audience Q and a kind of thing. And then we did a, a signing um, for like an hour and 20 minutes. And then the rest of the time we just watched horror films. So it was, it was magical, man. And it was so, so good to be back at something in person, you know, masks or not, it was just like fantastic to be back at a festival. Yeah. Uh, Cause last year I did, I attended from uh, this cam in my garage. So <laughs> it wasn't the same vibe. Like I tried to do creepy campfire. I burned a log in my yard, read a story out of Fangoria. <laughs> you know, like, it was not the same thing as actually like flying to Telluride and, and hanging out. And yeah, those, those guys are my homies. Like, I just feel a real camaraderie with, with yeah, I, I, Jones and I came up, you know, writing intros for each other's weird collections and stuff. Like, we've, we've been um, appreciating each other's work since 2004, 2005, oh. um, and, and, and uh, we've always been positioned by each other in uh, the small press sections. You know, we've always been on the, these little weird indies, and it would be, you know, Johnson and Jones, and then last year, we were in Barnes & Noble, Johnson and & Jones in the horse section, and it was just like, a really cool moment to, to see that still happening. Uh, so now I got to catch up to him though. Cause he's like five novels ahead of me. <laughs> he's got another one in the hopper right now. That guy, yeah. that guy can't stop writing. So I gotta, I gotta try and stay on the racks with him. He probably wrote um, one since yeah, he started he, he just, this. He absolutely is writing. One right now. He, he'll go. <laughs> I've seen him at festivals and conventions working on novels, uh, popping out short stories and doing press for other events and interviews and stuff. Hardest. I mean, literally the hardest working guy in business, like a fantastic work ethic, yeah. um, which is a big part of why he's, he's kicking butt right now. You know? Absolutely. Doesn't Fangoria run that, uh, that horror show? Fangoria has been a big piece of it uh, for years. They're out there. They're always, um, there's, there's a couple merch sections um, and they are one of the big sponsors. Um, so Phil, you know, that's the primary editor is always out there now. Um, they Phil do Noble. a lot of their coverage there. And uh, yeah. And so they're, um, yeah, Fango's been a, been an awesome part of that. Um, 
And it's just so cool. Like, especially as an 80s horror kid, Fangoria and Gorezone yep. were like defining parts of my childhood. So, well, Gorezone had posters too. I was I always wish they both had posters in yeah. the middle. Yeah, um, yeah. But man, just just I'm I'm so glad. I really, I really like their new iteration of it. And I feel like um I like how dense it is too. You know, people are like, oh, it's so expensive. I'm like, it's a hundred pages. It's a huge full color bleed magazine. And it's gonna cover all the weird horse stuff you can't get anywhere else you know so yeah, yeah. i would be like they're, that they're cool. with, I, I bet man i'd love to do that i was like that not with fangoria nothing but uh i forget the magazine it was a video game magazine and they would come out with like i don't know if you played half-life or half-life 2 but i'd have those posters or whatever the monthly magazine was um, like pc gamer or game pro or game pro that's it game pro yeah. pc game man yeah that's that's why I could do a whole podcast about video games, man. I've been, I've been <laughs> that and in it since the uh, UHF connects and uh, Pong only machines. I had the Odyssey <laughs> 3000, which was just a weird yellow thing, and you would screw it into UHF on the back of the TV, and the game would insta start when you turn the power on. So you had to like both be ready, you know, you can sit super close to one dude. You each have one controller. That's hilarious. And just play play Pong. You know, like, I love video games a whole lot, too. I'm not a – I don't have time to play them anymore, but that's why we got Mark Laidlaw and uh, one of my favorite media composers that did a lot of N64 games for Acclaim. Um, they are horror-adjacent, so I said, fuck it. They, I want to yeah. <laughs> yes. But, yeah, I'm right there with you. I love video games. They're a great art form. Um, man, you know what? I think we got to wrap up about now with a few more questions. But I do want you to come back. It's fun to sell talking. We've we've barely scratched the surface with you. So I'm going to jump to what are you currently reading, or what did you possibly just finish that you want to talk about? Um, my my airplane book is actually uh, my heart is a chainsaw by Stephen Graham Jones. I'm halfway <laughs> into that thing right now. Nice. So I was like, oh, I'm about to see him, and I haven't had a chance yet, and uh, I just copped that, and so I was reading that on the way out. Before that, it's like. Uh, I got, I got behind, uh, I was building this office. And so I got super behind on blurbs. So I was just reading like a bunch of books for blurbs. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I don't, I always don't know, like if I can talk about that stuff in advance, like if it's not out yet or whatever, it's yeah. weird. Like I don't want to mess with anybody's NDAs. So um, reading stuff that's not out yet. Um, I can tell you, uh, people are going to love Gabino's book when it, when it lands. Um, but they knew that already. Um, so yeah, <laughs> I'm, I'm uh, partway through. My heart is a chainsaw and loving it. Like I, I knew I was going to, it's, it's not melting my face. Like parts of the only good Indians. Cause I'm not a slasher dude. You know, that's a, uh, I'm, a, I'm like a parasite supernatural demonic or literary horror dude. Like slashers have never been my jam, but I so appreciate Jones's energy, the way he loves slashers that it's, <laughs> it's, you know, contagious. Yeah. Like my, my favorite slashers were like the ones with the weird or dumb metaphysical shit, like nightmare on Elm street or, um, I really liked Jason Goes to Hell, even though that movie sucked. It was kind of like it, hidden. It is entertaining. Plus Jason. It was so gruesome. Yeah. But uh, no, my jam was like Stuart Gordon movies, you know, like yeah. um, reanimator. Yeah. Yeah. And so uh, I, I don't I don't go back with slashers the way he does. But I, but I still am totally loving the buck. That's the great thing about the 80s, man. I mean, whatever the subgenre be, they had the best fucking movies back then. Uh, one of my favorites is uh, Day of the Dead. Uh, oh, yeah. Mirrors. that <laughs> That's just such a great film, man. That opening hand through the wall scare where she's looking at the calendar. Yeah. 
Like I, I know it's coming now. It still gets me. Bob, Are you kidding and, me? Yeah, and you got Bob yeah. just listening to his Walkman, and uh, at the end, that asshole gets torn apart. That's choke stuff. on him. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> living down in the tunnels. It's so reduced too. It's like I love how it's like because living in the mall. Right. So Dawn is like a fantasy to me. I'm like, you get to run around the mall with yeah. these cool trams, shotgun and zombies, playing with, you know, whatever you want. Especially as a kid when I was watching that, I was like, the mall was the promised land. So that was the best thing ever. It was like, you get to fight zombies and play at the mall all day. You're like, you've made it. And then it was like, yeah, but in the next one, they're all just like in a pit underground. Yeah. That's and the depressing. doctor's getting even weirder, you know. Yeah, that so, guy yeah. definitely molests some, some dead bodies. He, oh yeah, he, he was a creeper. He was <laughs> a real creeper. You know, me, me and Brennan are of the last generation where it was right before, and yeah, I think we're we're definitely the same generation, Brennan. You and I, aren't we? We're only three years apart. Yeah. Fuck it. Yeah. Okay. So <laughs> we were the generation right before the internet got to what it was, because like for me, MySpace was big when let's see, I was in middle school. Um, so I got to see that transition, but I spent a lot of my time outside playing old school video games and at the mall. And I go to the mall nowadays and it's like back in my home, the one near me, Brennan in Massachusetts, that doesn't exist anymore. Uh, they knocked right. it down. Uh, the one where I live now in South Jersey, it's, uh, it's depressing. <laughs> it's, yeah, it's, the, the malls are not what they once were. They're, they're like genuinely eerie spaces now if they still exist. You know, it's like mostly empty storefronts and stuff. Wandering yeah. through them. <laughs> Just like, what's happening? It, it's, it's super weird. Because the one in my uh, near my hometown, there was this very large arcade slash bowling alley slash sports bar that just bought a huge property there a few years ago. And now the whole thing's gone. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. Um, Brandon, what are you currently reading? I'm just going to throw out real quick the uh, the town I live in right now, their mall shut down probably five, six years ago. And a church owns the entire thing now, which is just. I don't think it's even that uncommon, but it's still weird to me. Um, well, they need that much space. <laughs> church things. Church things. Um, they can like pop business. a mega church in, right? <laughs> yeah. And well, plus well, church merch, like all the different little church stores come out of the mega zone. Yeah. I think they are doing mall mall churches, you know. Yeah, I haven't been in there. Too scared, but, but um, it's, <laughs> they're doing stuff. Um, I am, uh, you know, I every year I make this nice little October pile. Say this is what I'm going to read because it's October and uh, it's that's expected. I think, um, and I never get to half of it because I'm like I got to review this book and I've got to do this thing and. Uh, but I, I made it a point to read. I've been I've been putting off uh, Scott Thomas's Kill Creek for way too goddamn long now. So I'm like 150 pages into that, and it's it's awesome. It's it's really cool. I I kept hearing it was like the quintessential haunted house novel, which is absolutely my jam, and I'm I'm absolutely sold so far. Um, and I you know I love it so much that I I'm I'm gonna go ahead and just pick up Violet that he put out like last year because. Uh, he he's got he's got a really cool writing style um and you know i, I was i was sucked into that one on page one so it you, you just you, you hit an author like that every once in a while you read like a page of their book you're like okay i've gotta i've gotta get everything else they wrote because i know yep. this is somebody for me 
Patrick, what about you? So, yeah, kind of to go off of what you said, I mean, for listeners that listen to the show often, I'm sure you have heard us talk about Ronald Kelly to death, talking about 80s writers, 90s writers. But um, there's one that this is a reissue, Mr. Globe, Mr. Globe Bones. It's a collection all Halloween oriented. And, you know, I, I can't not this is me complaining in a good way. I can't get in stories that out books that I want to read that aren't guests on the show. And I love it. It's a great problem to have, but I don't have enough time to read. Just like it, how, how many pages is this? 106, 107, whatever. So, you know what? Based off of that, I'm going to start that tonight. Um, Halloween's going to be over before I know it. And that'll be, I'll be a missed opportunity to read it in the season that's meant to be read in. So yeah, that'll be my new book. I just, uh, I'm almost done with Mike Thorne's shelter for the dam, the dams. Um, it's, it's pretty good, man. It's a story. It's kind of a, I think it's coming of age. It's these kids and someone, one of the kids goes missing and there's a shelter that's a shack, but some believe it's a house. It's, it's a lot of weird trippy shit that I, I don't know if you've read that yet, Jeremy, but it sounds like something based off of what we've talked about that you would probably like it. There's a lot of meta, metaphysical uh, elements to it as well. So I'm liking it a whole lot so far. We're going to be talking with him in a few days. Um, I, I would recommend those. I'd always recommend reading Ronald, uh, Ronald Kelly too. Um, listeners, if you want to check out reviews, if you want to check out articles written by past guests, go to deadheadspace.com. And uh, Jeremy, where can people follow you? Um, yeah, I mean, uh, my super basic website name, jeremyrobertjohnson.com, um, is kind of just a general entry point, but I'm mainly active on Twitter. Like, I, I go to Facebook out of like, I don't know, a fiduciary duty to my publisher. Like, I still off a Facebook account, but, but I'm on there just, just out of like a begrudging sense of I'm supposed to have this platform. Um, Twitter is where I have fun. So that's where I, where I, uh, like to engage. Um, it's easy to reach me there. Um, so that's, that's probably my favorite place. Uh, I'm over on Instagram. So basically just your generic platforms plus, plus a website. Um, you can contact me directly through the website too. I'm, I'm like, uh, regrettably accessible. I'm always, I'm always cool with it until I get like once every three years or so I get a, a real creeper and I'm like, I, I got it. I got to shut this stuff down. <laughs> but um, in general, yeah, I'm super easy to, to reach out to and I'm, I'm uh, all over the internet. So hit me up, really- Friendster, hotternot.com, you know, my MySpace account's still out there. <laughs> <laughs> we just po- posted a preview of tomorrow's episode with Bree Morgan saying how, um, We've had this conversation before where Brennan says, I'm paraphrasing, um, it's okay to reach out to authors if you like their books, but just remember, act. I mean, it's hard to say this, but with some people, but act as though we're face to face and not social media. Then, then I got to caution people that would act weird in person too. So just don't be creepy. <laughs> don't. Yeah. Don't send weird pictures. Don't take pictures of you with their book in the bathtub. It's not, you know, it's, <laughs> it's, it's, it's just very odd. Um, final thoughts, sir. And by sir, I mean you, Jeremy. Um, shoot. Final thoughts. Like, these are the last ones I get to have. 
I mean, you can Ever. interrupt me at any point you want. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> um. Man, just uh, I've had a great time being here. It's awesome talking with you guys. And uh, thank you for letting me prattle on about the Nintendo Wii. I didn't realize I'd, I'd get that much Wii coverage in. <laughs> it's time to bring it back. It's yeah. honestly, there should be a Wii revival. So I love Nintendo. I could, you know what? I, like, I kind of want to just have a video game discussion with you about older consoles one day. Uh, Brennan, I'm jumping in for final thoughts before you, sir, so you can close okay. it. Um, my final thoughts are that we share a middle name. That's Robert. So that's what the R stands for. It's obviously the best middle name. Um, <laughs> but in all seriousness, it's been great talking to you. Uh, I really do want to talk to you next year, too, because, I mean, man, everything you say, he's kind of like Jans. He reminds me of Jans in a sense where, like, I feel like I'm a lot less intelligent than you, but I'm getting, like, 1% smarter by listening to the smart words that you say. <laughs> No, but you are easy to talk to. So I do appreciate it. Yeah, yeah. This was fun. We covered a lot of different stuff, but it was real fun. And these, not knocking any pre- previous guests, but these are the types of episodes where uh, even after working a full-time job, been with my son, a good complaint, and he's made me very tired. I feel great. I feel very energized right now. Um, so <laughs> Brennan, final thoughts, sir. <laughs> My final thoughts are I'm a little surprised that after the uh, Nintendo Wii, uh, we didn't go down the route of having more active video games. I mean, I know you had the Xbox Connect, but that was we have one of those. It's a piece of crap. Um, (laughs) Totally useless. And the games they designed for it are they're just not fun. It's like they were taking a step back like we're going to have all this motion involved, but the game is going to be such shit. You are going to hate it. We have a Star Wars one. It's not fun. How do you make a Star Wars video game not fun? Uh, especially if you get to act out having the lightsaber. So uh, I, I'm a little surprised that we went right back to sitting on our ass with controllers after the you know technological outburst that was the Wii. And those are my final thoughts. Amen. I got three video game consoles. That's a Nintendo NES, my first console when I was three. I had that. Um, I got the N64, my personal favorite console ever. And then I got the Wii. And I love all three of them. And I'm not planning on updating anything for a long time. <laughs> I'm, I'm oh, I'm sorry. This, I the Switch is final, final thoughts. <laughs> the Switch, I, my son has the Switch, and it's pretty fun, man. It's, it good. Looks, it's got a lot of good stuff on it. A lot of the new ones look great, but it just comes down to time and money. And like, I want more tattoos and I can't afford those right now because I got to think about (laughs) buying other shit that I need, like food and bills and such. (laughs) My, my, my uh, allocation is it's my time. It's part of my time with my son. So I've gotten Minecraft and smash brothers. Like that's our, that's our jam right now. And this month it's called the hallow mode and it's all um, Castlevania characters or monsters only allowed. And all creepy backgrounds, so it's like Metroid backgrounds with aliens and stuff. And it's uh, uh, he calls it spoopy. I guess that's what the kids are saying instead of spooky now. It's it's like the spoopy mode. So it's been fun. Uh, but uh, those, those, yeah, I would advise the the Switch is a good system if you were to get a new one. Uh, it's it's been pretty righteous. Yeah. All right, now that's gonna be in my head. All right, I'll look into it. <laughs> you don't have that time. Nobody has that time. <laughs> Uh, listeners next episode episode 122 is our second annual halloween special with janine pipe guest host erica robin and hunter shea that year is this thursday 
And uh, we also may have some other surprise episodes coming this week. Wink, wink. You have many podcasts to choose from. Thank you for picking us. You are now leaving Deadhead Space. This was my garage. Um, so now, yeah, framed out a room and did the drywall insulation and put in a window and stuff. And now it's like a place I can exist. So oh shit, pretty stoked. I, I remember seeing you do a reading. I think it was last year for Sadie Hartman. And it, it looked very garagey. So it looks significantly yeah. <laughs> less garagey now. <laughs> yeah, it was like. I would have to set up a cell phone on a on a camp toilet, and then I had a Japanese partition screen thing behind me, and a temp bookcase, and I would just freeze out here too because it was an unfinished garage, you know. So it was like always had to run like fans or uh, little swamp coolers and stuff. That was crazy. <laughs> now you look like you're in a real office. It's wonderful. Yeah, it's just yeah, it's <laughs> it is. It's funny. It's like a real office. <laughs> Before we start, we always ask every guest if there's anything at all you do not want to talk about. We will write that down right now and not talk about it. Um, not particular, no. I mean, okay. pretty open book. So, yeah, sounds good. Sweet. What do you uh, guys do with all the edits, the, the stuff people request be taken out? You just keep like a special file on a USB just in no. case someday? <laughs> Blackmail file? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, I've never been asked that. That's, I'm surprised. Uh, no, I, I delete it. I because yeah. <laughs> at this point this is the 123rd recorded episode we got another series of like a mini series where it's readings and such that go from 30 minutes some have gone up to an hour at this point we have because some of a lot of episodes are two hours so if not we got almost 200 hours worth of footage oh my gosh i don't want to pour through that shit ever again no. <laughs> <laughs> 